Amen. Amen. We are grateful to be back in the house of the Lord one more week. I'm just thankful that he is um, risen, that he is alive, and that we don't need to wait for um, Easter Resurrection Sunday, but we are in our hearts always bearing that Jesus Christ died on our behalf and that he has been arisen and that through him we have the gift of eternal life. Um, we are just grateful for the Lord, just grateful to be back this week um, to share in the word of God. This has been, you know, these weeks during COVID have been very challenging even for us. So um, just thankful that, you know, God has just protected and just given us the, um, the, the privilege to be able to join back in together this week. We do not, as I say every week, we don't take it for granted that we can fellowship and, um, and congregate. I was reading some things about um, things that are happening in Australia and how they are restricting the gathering of churches. So we um, just do count it a privilege that we are able to gather and that um, we have the freedom and the liberty to do so. So I'm thankful for all of you. I'm thankful for those of you who are watching online. It's just a blessing to be able to fellowship um, just continually in the body of Christ. So we are continuing on this week in the book of Acts, as you know, and um, we're, we're getting closer to the end. So I'm excited about that. Just um, it takes a lot of endurance, I think, from a congregation to stay in the same book um, for as long as we've stayed in it. But I just pray that it's been just a time of rich growth and truth for you. Um, today's sermon is looking at um, the, the tactics as far as what, it, what goes into us evangelizing and witnessing to others, but more specifically, us coming to grips and understanding, you know, what is the cutoff in terms of how long we suffer with people that we know who may be unbelievers? Um, this is one of those kind of general questions that I think we probably have in our heads, but don't ever specifically ask. And it's one of those things that I think we find in Scripture again and a thing that we can answer. And if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, as I have been, you have probably known the feeling of sharing the gospel to someone, having a friend, having a family member who it seems like they just never will get it. Like they never get it. And so I want you to know, like, one, is there a reasonable limit that we come to where we wash our hands of the situation and and let that person go? Or do we just faithfully endure them and keep sharing the gospel? I think finding this balance can be especially difficult for us as believers, because there is a trend for us in which we find it a bit easier to just go, go ahead and back out and say, all right, if that's the way you want to live, that's the way you want to live. But is that the way that we have been called to share and live around those who do not believe? Is that truly evangelism? Is that truly discipleship? There's a teacher that I work with at the school, and she will constantly kind of ask me, like, how long do we go? Like, how long do you keep going back to somebody before you decide, all right, this is enough, it's too much stress on me? And in general, I kind of give an answer, but I want to give a very specific answer today. And we're going to look at, um, again, Acts 18 and figure out, okay, what is it that we have to do? What is our obligation in sharing the gospel? So the title of today's sermon is Against All Odds, and we'll get to why that's the title towards the end. But I do want you to see 
that there is a methodology from the Bible on how we share the gospel. And just an encouragement, there's pretty much a methodology for anything that we need to do in our lives that is found in the Bible. So we don't have to grasp at straws. Go with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 18, verse number five. Acts 18, verse number five. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them. But when Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that in the word of God is all life and truth and these words are spirit and they are life and God so many of the questions that we have regarding this life can be answered by the word of God so Lord we have personal questions today we have questions regarding our unsaved friends we have questions regarding our unsaved family members God how long do we suffer with them how long do we contend God my prayer is that you will give those answers to us today in this sermon so that we in the most proper way can glorify you in the way that we live, in the way that we act, the way that we disciple, the way that we evangelize. It is in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So Paul here has gone, as we have seen, we've been following him all the way on this journey. He's been from Athens, then he goes to Corinth, and now he's arrived at Macedonia. And Luke writes that he was completely occupied with and by the word of God. So he gets here. And as we know, Paul went and began sharing as he would always do. He began teaching the word of God to the Jews. He found the synagogue where they were and he started to tell them about who Jesus was. And he was not distracted, distracted by the goal to which he was set to do. He came here with one purpose, and that was to share the gospel. This time, however, as we have seen, there is a more vitriolic response to the gospel. 
Now, in general, we would see there would be naysayers, there would be opposers to the gospel, but there would be a generous contention of people who would at least receive and believe the gospel. But in this case, that is not it. The majority of these people were actually upset and they opposed and reviled him in such a way that they had actually collected together as a group, a coalition almost, in order to oppose his preaching and teaching of the gospel. Now, so much of what we have talked about has always been about how Paul and the others, Peter and the others, as they go to these places and even when they get the response of the people, how they remain calm, how they persevere, how they still contend for the faith. But I think in this response that we see from Paul this time, if there's any a time that we can say, all right, Paul might be acting like I would here. This would be the occasion because I'm telling you now. Paul is acting like I would act in this situation. So in one sense, I'm like, all right, if Paul is acting like me, that means that there is some sort of truth that is behind his actions that I must at least dig to find out. Luke says here that Paul shook off the dust of his garments. Now, for us, we don't have the context for what that means. And it sounds like a very strange thing. So we need to figure out before we just accept, oh, yeah, he shook the dust off his garments. We need to go back to some instructions that Jesus had actually given the disciples in order to decipher what this action actually meant. If we look in Matthew 10 and 14, this is Jesus telling his disciples, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That's what Paul gets this. Now, we still don't really get the context, but Jesus himself is actually making a reference to this old Jewish culture that we first find in Nehemiah when it says, if a person comes to you with a promise, if they do not fulfill that promise, you show a symbol of disowning them by shaking the dust from your garment and and withdrawing yourself away from them. And so that is where Paul is getting this symbol. And when we see this, it seems like it is a total dismissal of these people just because they had rejected and opposed the sermon that he had preached. What's happening here? Why would Paul, who has been, you know, the mark of consistency in sharing the gospel and persuasion and perseverance, why all of a sudden is he walking away from a group of people who obviously needed to be saved by the gospel? I think we need to be careful here to work through how Paul responded in this way. But then I think we also need to see that there are real implications for us. There are real implications for us in our personal lives. And I don't want you to think in this sermon today, don't think real broad. Don't think about, oh, yeah, there are millions of people who need to hear the gospel who need to be saved. No, I want you to think about Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe, who has been, you know, doing what Uncle Joe been doing for 40, 50 years. And it seems like nothing gets through to Uncle Joe. How long do you suffer with Uncle Joe? What about Aunt Mary? Y'all know how Aunt Mary is. Aunt Mary cusses like a sailor, cusses worse than Uncle Joe. How long do we suffer long with Aunt Mary and Uncle Joe? And then when do we decide, all right, I'm shaking my garments of this situation? What about that old high school friend of yours that... The only commonality y'all have now is the fact that y'all are the same age and went to the same school, but not the same spiritual status. 
How long do you contend with these people and know, all right, I'm actually having an impact or I have to wash my hands, shake off my garments in this situation? We need to figure out when enough is enough or if enough is ever actually enough. Let's try to build from there. What does the Bible say about how we are to evangelize? The Bible says that we have been charged to go and make disciples. We are charged to go and engage them with the singular purpose of converting them. There's no hidden agenda. But is there a cutoff period for that? For us, we should hearken back to the words of Jesus. And these are going to be our points in today's sermon. So our first point today is Jesus foresaw failure. Jesus foresaw our failure. Now, I say failure and I'm immediately going to contradict that word because maybe failure isn't the best word. But just for the sake of how we typically view it, let's just say it's failure. Jesus knew that not every one of our attempts to convert people would be effective. That is difficult to swallow, but I do think there are reasons why. Let's go to Matthew 10 and 5. We're going to encounter our scripture again, but let's look at what he says in the whole of this text. Matthew 10 and 5. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel to the, uh, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter in, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. It's a key verses here. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's focus here on what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not receive you, if anyone does not listen to your words, then shake the dust off from your feet. This is the part that we actually see Paul is literally committing himself to. But what is the significance? Why would Jesus, if our goal as believers is to draw the lost, why would we be told if the son of man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself? Why inevitably is there failure when we share the gospel? Is God somehow reneging on what he has said in the Bible? Well, no. So why is it that he instructs his disciple that if someone rejects this truth, you should move on quickly. I want to give you several reasons. So these are going to go from A to D. So, you know, for your writing, I'll try to list them. But, you know, I may or may not be a little dyslexic, so I may skip one. You know, I don't know all my alphabets. I have to say them in order. But A, I got A. A, why is one of the reasons why they are not always seeing success and why we are not always seeing success? A, the gospel isn't just for them. The gospel isn't just for the people that we are sharing with. 
This was certainly a part of Jesus reasoning here. The disciples would have hardly been fulfilling their call to go and make disciples if they got bogged down with every stubborn and rebellious person who rejected the gospel. Think about in your own life, the amount of times you may have been sharing with someone. If someone is so callous to the gospel to the point you realize this is not that moment, there are other people out there who need to hear the gospel, who may respond favorably, favorably to it. If we get bogged down, then it really becomes a point of pride on our part. And no, I'm going to be the reason you come to Christ. You were never going to be the reason anybody comes to Christ. But by over focusing yourself on one person or one group of people, you may be missing the opportunity to go and share to others who need to hear the gospel as well. The truth is that we will potentially miss those opportunities if we tarry too long with people who are callous. So that's a there may be other people who need to hear the gospel. And there's B. We could actually end up being a hindrance. We could actually end up being a hindrance. There is a time, and if you have ever shared the gospel, specifically with a very close family member or a very close friend, there is a time where we can become the worst part of Christianity to people. There is a time where we try to beat them up and drown them in the world, in the word, that we become the worst representation of what a Christian is. If a person's stubbornness drives me to anger, then we need to take that as an opportunity to move on, because at that point, it's probably gone unprofitable. That's why when Paul gives us these instructions in Titus, he says, listen, do not get in arguments over genealogies or questions about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. We have to be the ones who understand because of our sensitivity to the spirit. At this point, this is only about me. You can absolutely say you're doing the work of God and absolutely be doing the work of God for your own self. We have to know when we have reached that cutoff. Let her see. It implies that we are the means of salvation. It implies that we are the means of salvation. It is a bit easy to think that we will be the only way or reason that a person gets saved. But who gets saved is not on us at all. Indeed, the most important one. It is a testament that salvation is a work of God and not man. That's it. This is the ultimate reason for us that there is lots of failure in our trying to reach others. Think about those friends and family members that you feel have rejected the gospel. And I'm talking consistently over years and decades rejected the gospel. How long does it take before you start to feel that their rejection of the gospel it was a rejection of you? Is our anger a righteous indignation or is our anger because of personal offense? Choosing to move on and even possibly reevaluate is acknowledging that we are not the sovereigns of who are saved, but it also gives opportunity for others to come in and water where we've planted. So why doesn't the gospel work every time? It's point number two in the sermon. The gospel doesn't work 
every time because it makes us trust in God more than ourselves. It makes us trust in God more than ourselves. You know, this year at the school, this will be my first class that I've been with for a whole four years. And we get these stories of these kids who come back years after we feel like we toiled and we labored with them in the gospel, in the classroom. And then they'll go off somewhere and some random person like a campus minister will share the gospel and they come to Christ. And it shouldn't be a frustration on our part because we realize, you know what, whoever plants or whoever waters is insignificant because inevitably God is the one who causes the increase, who causes salvation to happen. So if salvation happens, it wasn't because of me. It wasn't because of my work. It was because of God. Now, I'm a nominal part in that I have to be obedient to the call of ministry, which is to share the gospel. But if I share and share and share and that person goes off and then they get it, then maybe I planted the seed. But somebody else came and watered it and God gave the increase. That is a beautiful picture of how the body of Christ works. And I think the church would be better instead of us being so insulated and so and so selfish. Did it happen in our church? Did it happen this way? Knowing that there are members of the body of Christ everywhere who are doing the faithful work. Let's look back at what Paul says. He says, your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Wait a minute. This seems to be a very different Paul than to the Jew. I became as a Jew, Paul, doesn't it? How do we reconcile his evangelistic approach here? At first glance, Paul appears to be a bit callous and he's leaving them out of frustration, but he's not. That isn't the point. Let me tell you how that shows here that he wasn't just frustrated, but that he was fulfilling the call of ministry. When he says that I am innocent, he is saying essentially that he has done what God requires him to do, which is share the gospel. He didn't try to do any more. He didn't try to do any less. He says the only thing that I can control is that I share the truth and the gospel that I know. But who believes is not up to Paul? Who believes is not up to Brandon? This is a helpful lesson that we all need to learn in trying to witness to people that we know and love. Belief, belief is God's work, not yours. It's not up to you. We cannot If you have children and this is a struggle for me, I got 13 years, so y'all know. But one thing that I'm realizing is you can't discipline into belief. You can't. You can't whoop into belief because Lord knows if you could, all my children would be saved. You cannot do it. You cannot fuss them into belief. In fact, we cannot teach anybody into belief. And I go even further. I've never preached a person into belief. We are not in control of that. Our responsibility is to communicate the truth and then trust that if God sees fit, he will intervene. 
Perhaps no one understood this more than Paul. And I want you to think about this. I've mentioned this before, but I hope that this gives you some encouragement. The reason why Paul is probably able to leave so easily and trust the work of God, because I want you to think, as we've read throughout the book of Acts, Paul is not converted until Acts 9. But the majority of the accounts that Luke writes from up till Acts 9, he gets from Paul while Paul was in prison, which means Paul heard the first sermon of the New Testament church because he would have been there at Pentecost. He wasn't converted. Paul heard the other sermon by Peter at the portico. He wasn't converted. We know for a fact, we know for a fact that Paul heard what is probably one of the best sermons that we've ever seen recorded in Stephen in the moment that he died because Paul was there orchestrating to make sure that they killed him. Yet all those sermons. And he wasn't converted. In fact, you can argue after every sermon Paul heard, his heart was hardened. How is that possible? Because God saves whom he will save when he will save in his own timing. It is not about who's preaching, because if you can't get saved from Peter preaching, then that's how you know it ain't on you. There were people who heard the sermon at the mount as Jesus is preaching and they still rejected it. That's why he says here when Jesus is speaking, he says, if they reject you, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they have a revelation here in the gospel, seeing me that even Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have. So the rejection is not a rejection of you. The rejection is a rejection of who God is. But that also means that their acceptance is not an acceptance because of your work. It is an acceptance because of the work and the works of Jesus Christ. Who believes is not up to you. And to be honest, we should all know that because none of us is a product of our own good works or belief. Perhaps God even delayed Paul's salvation, which we see for a greater purpose. Think about it like this. This summer, we um, got some sunflower plants, seeds, and, you know, I planted them. It takes them about two weeks to, to grow. And after we planted them, almost instantly, Elliot was like, all right, they're not growing. And I was like, dude, like we just planted them. And so I did the best I can to, you know, explain to a four year old, you know, this is going to take a while. So every day, essentially, he came out there and asked me, all right, where, where are they? Because I don't see them. I don't think they're growing. And of course, I tried to explain to him, look, you know, they need water. They need sun. And if they get that, they will grow naturally. Of course, he didn't understand it. He remained impatient. He asked and asked. Until one day, about two weeks later, we actually saw growth. When we are trying in our own lives to decipher if the word of God was received well enough, sometimes the hands off approach is best. Why? Because in those times, someone else may come and shine a bit of light or douse some water on it in order for it to grow. That's why Paul wrote this in in uh, this is why Luke rather wrote this or Paul wrote this. I put the wrong scripture. So 
It says Acts 3, 5, and 9. That is not correct. I don't even remember. I think it's 1 Corinthians. Anyway, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. There was a trend happening here where some of those people who had been converted was like, oh, wait, I was converted by Paul and I was converted by Apollos. And it's, of course, always the super spiritual sanctified folks. I was converted by Jesus. But Paul comes. He's like, listen, whoever led you to Christ is insignificant. He who waters or plants is insignificant because inevitably it is God who gives all increase. This is is the way that we can know that at some point I may, people I love, people I care about, have to just release them, let it go, and trust that God may have somebody else in place who will come water where I've planted. Who will come do some of the work that I can't do because of my years of frustration. And if that happens, I should rejoice. I'm not frustrated because now the one who was counted as an enemy is now counted as a brother. That's the beautiful part. God gives the growths. I know there are those around you that you want to see saved, but all you can do is do what you can do. And let God do the rest. Because I'm telling you now, if there was one iota that we contributed to our salvation or anybody else's. You know how many people would be saved? A big old fat zero. Nobody would be saved. That's the fact. So this means that if we have friends or family around us who need to be saved, then it may be our default position to trust that God has faithful witnesses around us as well. Paul shows us by leaving that it caused him to not only redirect himself and his ministry, but he was also able to trust God and the work that God would do. And that brings us to our third point and our final point. It makes us more dedicated. I think it makes us more dedicated. Now, it doesn't seem like it would make us more dedicated to share our faith if we don't have favorable responses. But let me explain how it makes us more dedicated. If we understand the way evangelism works, the way discipleship works, then we know that Jesus said we will never have an issue finding the right amount of people to witness to. But there are not many who are willing to be the laborers to go and witness to those people. A rejection of the gospel is not indicative of the amount of people that need it. The Bible tells us that there are myriad people who need to be saved, but the workers, the people who are willing to do the diligent work to see them drawn into salvation is very few. And I think that also means that the people who are doing the right kind of work are also very few. Oh, you don't want this gospel. That's fine. If you're not going to hear from me, the harvest is plentiful. There are many other people I can go to. So if, if you reject what, what I've said, then there are more people that I can go find. And I can go share this same gospel to. That's why it makes us more dedicated. 
We don't put all of our gospel eggs in one basket and somebody rejects us. We just stop. No, there is a huge harvest out here and I can't get bogged down. And I don't want to think that I'm in control of who gets saved or not. So if you if you're rejecting this, maybe God has somebody else that's going to come and do it better than me. But I'm going to move on and find somebody else. Because when you have so many defeats in the gospel, in sharing the truth, I'm telling you, that one victory makes it all worth it. And you will search for that victory over and over and over again. That's why the Bible tells us in Luke 15 and 7, just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, one person who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That is what we are seeking for. It doesn't matter if we get 5,000 rejections. If only one person comes, all of heaven is rejoicing. That is what should be our impetus. That is what should be our drive to earnestly contend for the faith and see people saved. And it's one of my favorite phrases. And then you can tell that person now I will see you from the for the rest of eternity. There is never a moment that I will not see you again. I will see you for the rest of eternity. And all of heaven has just rejoiced because you came to faith. If you've ever seen somebody led to Christ, it gives you an energy that I cannot explain. It gives you a zeal that I cannot explain and a million disappointments for that one. Man, that one is worth it. It's beautiful, though, when you see the result of Paul not getting bogged down. It says that he went to Titus and then next door to him was Christmas and he went in his house and everybody believed. And then because they believed, then it's like then a great number of Corinthians believed. It's amazing how even in God's goodness and his sovereignty, how he orchestrated it perfectly to happen that way. When God redirects us, when somebody rejects, when somebody doesn't want to hear it, We never know how God is redirecting us to actually grow the ministry in a way that we wouldn't have expected. You know, when Paul was thrown into prison, it seemed like a bit of a defeat. But if Paul had not been thrown in prison, Luke doesn't come to Paul and instruct him that he needs to write down what he's what he's seen and heard and said and done. And if he doesn't get that, then we don't get the majority of the New Testament. God has his amazing way to work everything for our good. And then it reminds us of this, and I'm closing. How does one come to faith? Is that they don't actually come to faith. Faith comes to them. That's the one thing I think I learned this week. Nobody comes to faith. Not a single one of us has ever come to faith. None of us are in the condition to come to faith. Faith comes to them. How do I know that? Because the Bible says faith comes by hearing. Faith comes. Faith comes to us. We don't come to faith. Faith ain't lost. We lost. Faith comes and finds us because we have heard the gospel and that hearing and that responding is a product of grace. 
How would an unbeliever hear? Somebody's got to share. You have not been commanded to convert anyone. Remember that. You have not been commanded to convert anybody. You have been commanded to share what it is you know. God will fill in the gaps. I know some of us may not be sharing our faith like we need, and I know that God is ultimately responsible for who is saved. So I won't say something cheap like some, somebody's eternity might depend on you. I've heard that one before. That's not true. No one's eternity depends on you. But you don't ever want to be that person who feels the weight of that guilt when someone passes away and you didn't share the gospel. Or someone shares with a person you see every day and they come to faith because somebody else was obedient and you weren't. Listen, this person that that we knew that died last week, her funeral was Friday uh, or yesterday, rather. And and one of the things I really wrestled with is that that was somebody that my wife and I had really gone. Gone to, to reach and to to save and, and to share and all these things, again, I believe happened sovereignly because my immediate thing, especially when I found out that she lived so closely to where I was working, I was like, if I had just known she was so close, I would have, I could have. And, and Chrissy was like, you would have done what? You could have done what? You're not responsible. You were not in charge. You were not in control. And she was like, that's a that's a lot to think of yourself to think that if you would have intervened, something would have been different. And the only thing that I could rest on while in some way it gives me peace, another way it doesn't was that. We had done what we were called to do. I'm not content. It doesn't make me feel like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we shared. But I think it. Lit something in me. Because I never know the last moment I'm going to have with somebody. And if I can get all, you know, all the joking, all the playing, but if we can get down to the gospel. If we can take our call seriously. I think we can avoid a lot of guilt in our lives. A lot of pain in our lives. But then I also think that. We can also trust that. Every person I see, I need to think of them as ground. I don't know what kind of ground they are. I don't know if they're good ground. I don't know if they're I don't I'm not even responsible for that. All I know is that I have been given a seed. Which is the word of God in the gospel. And my job is to throw it out. But God. The great harvester is the only means of salvation. And so if we want to see people saved. Then we must commit to doing the only thing we can do. Which is take this light, take this gospel, take this seed that we've been given and share it. And once we've shared and. If they don't respond the way we think they should, 
We continue to pray for them, but also trust that God may have other faithful witnesses out there for that person. And that it's a plentiful harvest out there. God needs laborers. Will you be the laborer? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, you know, these things can really be just really convicting for us, God. They can be, in a lot of ways, very challenging for us because, Lord, we do care about the souls around us. We do care about the people around us. And, God, because we love them, we want to, in some sort of way, be responsible for who knows and who hears and who gets saved. But inevitably, God, you're sovereign over that. And we have to trust that if we do our part, you will do your part. God, just give us the peace. Give us the wisdom to know when we've done what we can do, when we've done enough, and that we just trust that where we've planted or where we've watered, that you are able to give increase. That is our prayer, God. Lord, if there's anybody here, if there's anybody watching who doesn't know you, God, my prayer is that this sermon will be a seed or, or the water, or God, that this sermon will be the increase that you're giving, that you're drawing them to salvation, that you're drawing them into faith. That you are revealing yourself, God, sovereignly to them. Lord, I just pray that you open up their eyes, open up their hearts. And if there's anybody here, God, or watching who may be even callous to the truth, that you will have faithful laborers around them who will share who will love them, who will evangelize, and who will disciple. Lord, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So.